0: to Luke chapter 3. Back in Luke, well, chapter 3, verse 3, it was made clear that the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And while most of the leaders of Judaism in Israel rejected John's baptism, since they trusted in themselves that they were already righteous, Many people from the crowds, like tax collectors, apparently even Roman soldiers, were baptized by John for the forgiveness of sins as they listened to his message. But in Luke's Gospel, there was another who was a part of the crowd that heard and listened to the preaching of John the Baptist. And he too came to be baptized. Luke's version of the baptism of Jesus Christ is given in one quick sentence. Uh, the, The focus is not on John the Baptist. He isn't mentioned at all. Uh, the focus really isn't even on Jesus per se, but instead the focus in Luke's account focuses on the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the Father to the fact that this Jesus is the Messiah. The infancy narrative in John's preaching and baptism in Luke have been preparing us for Luke three twenty-one and 22. The time of preparation is over. The Messiah has arrived to begin the work of redemption. But why is he baptized with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Jesus had no sins. And what is the significance exactly? Because we're going to, uh, going to read on of putting a genealogy here in Luke 3 after his baptism instead of at the beginning of the story, which is where Matthew has his genealogy. Why is the earthly family tree of Jesus important now following his baptism? Why is that brought into the story here. Salvation for the whole world depends completely on the life of Jesus Christ. Everything about it. He didn't come just to do something for us. Jesus came to be something for us. Jesus stands in our place, not only to forgive us, but to make us perfectly righteous before God the Father. And that is precisely what Luke wants to show Let me pray. Our Father, I am thankful for Your Word and for the truth that is here, unending, unchanging, perfect. Lord, would You please forgive me of my sins and help me preach, help me speak clearly. May I bring out of this text what You wanted brought out of it when You inspired it by the preacher of the Word. And Lord, I pray that You would soften every heart, every heart, and open every ear to hear your message and receive it as the truth. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. This took place while Jesus was praying. And Luke pictures Jesus praying much more often than the other gospel writers do, particularly before significant moments in His ministry. In fact, His final prayer comes on the cross just before He dies. Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. But at His baptism, as He stands praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are My beloved Son with You I am well pleased. Jesus is the Son chosen by God to accomplish the Messianic work of salvation. And the opening of the heavens here sets the stage for what is about to happen in the rest of this Gospel. Heaven has opened to all humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is His Father's will. The only confusing thing here is why Jesus is being baptized. Again, baptism was for sinners who needed to repent and prepare the way for the Lord in their own hearts. Jesus, the text has just told us, however, is the subject of the Father's approval in verse 22. Not His judgment or His wrath. He has no sin to repent of and therefore has no need at all for repentance. So what is He doing? Beloved, He's being Jesus for you and for me. He's doing Jesus Why is the sinless one submitting to something that sinners need? Because at the outset of His ministry on the earth, it's made apparent that He has come to stand in the place of sinners all the time. In our place. At the account of His baptism in Matthew 3.14, John the Baptist is as confused as anyone else is at this. Matthew even has John the Baptist saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? That tips us off to something that not even in Israel had they fathomed or imagined the Messiah coming to be our substitute. There in Matthew 3, but Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We might understand why Jesus had to be our substitute on the cross, Right? so that He could absorb God's wrath in our place. But to our peril, we too easily forget that He is also our substitute in His obedience. The fact that we forget that dictates the entire mood of our entire lives as Christians. He not only came to die for us, but to obey for us. To be perfectly righteous for us. And I think sometimes that we think When God saves us, what's really happening is He's He's taking care of something so that He can get us in the position to now finally obey Him and please Him by the way we live our lives in light of what He has done. The Scripture says that Jesus fulfills all righteousness. All of it. So whatever good works are for, they're not doing anything for our salvation. And none of us would say that we believe any differently, but we live like we believe differently because we're absolutely frantic about doing enough good works to be righteous. You and I must be baptized. Therefore, Jesus is baptized. And by the way, the cross is not just the means by which Jesus dies. Remember, it's it's the culmination of His whole life. He didn't just come and go right to the cross. He lived... For 33 years. Because he had to fulfill all righteousness. He's being our substitute beginning here. In the waters of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We need to be baptized. We need to repent of our sins. Jesus enters the water as one of us. Doing everything God requires for righteousness. But he still had no sin to repent of. No, beloved, he didn't. But we did. He did have sin to take on Himself and carry and be punished for as though He had done them and was guilty for them. Our sin. In His baptism, Jesus is committing Himself to taking our place for everything that we need to stand accepted before God. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness, and righteousness. And that is why Luke puts his genealogy in the following verses to close chapter 3. Genealogies are usually tedious if we're honest they are they're just lists of names it seems and we already have one of Jesus for us in the Bible as far as his earthly lineage is concerned back in Matthew 1 that's how Matthew begins his gospel that's chapter 1 verse 1 through 14 but Matthew traced Jesus's line all the way back to Abraham that's how he ordered his genealogy from Abraham up to Joseph but here at the beginning of his ministry Luke does something much different with his genealogy. Luke traces Jesus from the present from his earthly father that was appointed to him, Joseph all the way back to Adam the beginning of the entire human race where by the way there was a son with whom God was not pleased verse 23 Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Negai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semin, the son of Joseph. the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Qasim, the son of Amadam, the son of Ur. The son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jareen, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim. the son of Meli, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The son of Terah. The son of Nahor. The son of Serug, The son of Ru. The son of Peleg. The son of Ebar. The son of Shelah. The son of Canaan. The son of Arphaxad, The son of Shem. The son of Noah. The son of Lamech. The son of Methuselah. The son of Enoch. The son of Jared. The son of Mahalalel, The son of Canaan. The son of Enos. The son of Seth. The son of Adam. The son of God. Seventy-seven names from Jesus all the way back to Adam. The first human being created on the earth. Luke doesn't call attention to any certain structure here. Really what the genealogy, genealogy, the way it reads, recounts this long, slow story that led from humanity's fall and rebellion against God in the garden to the coming of another who instead of bringing a curse upon all humanity will bring salvation. One reason the names and the line are so different in Luke's genealogy from Matthew's is that Matthew traces David's descendants through the royal line of Solomon and Judas kings, and while Luke follows a line through another son of David, Nathan, there in verse 31, some think Matthew gives the legal line of descent from David, while Luke gives the actual descendants of David and the branch of the family to which Joseph belongs. So there are difficulties in explaining the genealogy, but it would be foolish on our part, especially when we remember that one of the reasons Luke was writing was to provide an orderly account, a legally acceptable account of this Jesus and his history for Paul, who was on trial. We have to keep that in mind as well. But it would be foolish on our part to assume that Luke wasn't being intentional in the way he did this genealogy or didn't know what he was doing. It's better to assume our ignorance than Luke's. As we noted, Luke takes the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam in verse 38. And it's here at the mention of Adam that the very next thing we read is this in 4.1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Adam and temptation. That's a deadly combination, not just in scripture, but for the whole human race. We, we, if we're dialed in, and we, we didn't know the story, I know that most of us know the story well, but don't miss what Luke is doing here. You get to Adam, you get to the fall, you get to temptation, and then you have this other son, and what's he facing? Temptation. What's going to happen? Luke is saying to us, I want you to read the following verses in light of Genesis 3 and the failure of Adam. We could make the case that in Matthew's account, he wants to contrast Israel's unfaithfulness as God's covenant people with Jesus' faithfulness. But by mentioning Adam and then the temptation, Luke wants us to contrast Jesus with Adam. In Genesis 3, the first Adam was tempted here. The second Adam, is tempted. In Genesis 3, Adam had all the advantages. He was surrounded by the riches of the garden. Jesus faces the tempter in the desolation of the wilderness. He had nothing. Nothing. It's bleak. It's desolate. It's dry. It's parched. It's wilderness. Nothing good happens for God's people in the wilderness. It never had. He had an entire generation of Israelites that had seen the plagues and walked through the Red Sea that didn't get into the Promised Land, died in the wilderness. The wilderness is where people go to die, even God's people. That see, Adam was surrounded with provision. Jesus was surrounded with destitution. The situation is more bleak for him. It's going to be more difficult. Satan has an even greater advantage. the The, the deck is stacked even higher. Against Jesus, but as one commentator says where Genesis 3 recounts the fall of man, Luke 4 will recount the standing of man. You and I are right here in chapter 4. We are either going to be connected to Adam and death and condemnation, or we will be connected to Jesus and life and salvation. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And He starts that right here in Luke 4. Here Jesus begins to reverse the ravages of the fall. Here is the second Adam. The head who represents a new humanity. Picking it up in the middle of verse 2 there. And He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now read that again. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Adam experienced temptation in one moment. In one day. Notice the contrasted intensity right away of the temptation Jesus is facing. He's been bombarded by the devil with temptation for 40 days. What we're reading in these verses is the climax of that. The last three big, climactic temptations that Jesus faced. Satan attacked where the flesh is weakest. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. Inspired Scripture tells us He was hungry not that he wasn't hungry until day 40. On day 40, his hunger has gotten the best of him. And the snake attacks. That's what he does. And notice what is at issue here in the first temptation, in Luke anyways, the identity of Jesus. Luke has the temptations in a little different order than Matthew does, and I think that's intentional. The first thing is whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, which is very interesting because Satan is right off the bat doing what he did in the garden, calling God a liar. What had God just said in 3.22 about Jesus and His identity? You are my beloved Son. And what's the first thing the tempter, the snake, does? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are who you claim to be, or who God says you are, then prove it. And there it is. Who makes the children of God prove they are who they say they are? Isn't that interesting? Satan says he isn't God's son, regardless of what God had said in 322. Satan says you aren't God's son unless you can turn the stone into bread. Now, could Jesus do that all day, every day? He could have been eating for 40 days. Whatever he wanted. He's suffering. Beloved, for you and for me. Of course, Jesus could turn stones into bread, but He didn't because Satan had taken what was true to use it for a lie. This is where faith is necessary. We need faith in order to be approved by God. Faith in this Jesus. Now, on another level, you and I don't want to wait for anything, especially when we think or know it's something we need. Right? Surely, God won't make us wait if we need it. Who doesn't need to eat when it's been 40 days since you have? I am good when I am hungry for about 11 seconds. Right? I love that statement. I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry. You know? just It's it's not a good... Not a good time. But Jesus has the faith that we so often do not. So He would prefer to wait for God rather than to make His need more important when His identity has been questioned. He cites Deuteronomy 8.3 in verse 4 here. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now what's the truth here? The truth, beloved, is when you boil it right down to it, You don't need bread to live. You need the Word of the Lord to live. Bread is a means, not the source of life. So Jesus stays hungry in His belly because the Word of God will sustain Him. And and you, you see that literally. I do think it's literal. You see that in John. The woman at the well. His disciples are like, surely you're hungry, right? It's been, I have food to eat that you don't know about. You mean like he has a secret stash of peanuts or no. He when he is fixed on the Lord, on his father, and trusting in him and doing his will, he doesn't need to eat. So he's not going to give in here, now. Well, you and I don't have that kind of thing. I mean, we might be able to pull it off every once in a while, right? But that's not what God requires. He doesn't require, he doesn't grade on a curve. Like 50% obedience is, is pretty good. God no, doesn't work that way. You and I don't have the kind of faith that can discern what we need the most, especially when we're suffering. We, we, we don't have it, but Jesus had it for us. So on to the next one. That's not going to work. Was and is. We can forget this. And it's not because he's big and red and has flaming eyes and fangs and is scary. It's not that. That's not what makes him scary. Steven Spielberg can create an image that is scary. That's not the kind of scary the devil's power is. The devil knows the Scriptures. That's terrifying. He knows the Word. Like Who saw that coming? I'll, just, I'll quote Scripture. We'll see how you resist when I quote Scripture. God had given him the kingdoms of the world to hold under his sway. Satan confesses that this authority that he does have had been delivered to him. Now, who could do that? Well, the only one that could do such a thing was God. Satan offers that to Jesus. Now, I wonder if Satan, because he knows the Scripture, could make sense of the fact that Eventually, Jesus will have all this anyway. All the authority in the heaven and on earth will be given to the Son of Man. If He succeeds in the mission for which He was sent by God, Satan would have known Psalm 2.8. Satan would have known Daniel 7.14. He knew what the Son of Man was going to get, and he knew that Jesus was the Son of Man. So, why not have all that power and authority now, without having to suffer? Without having to be their substitute? What is the alternative submitting to the Father's will? It's to worship Satan instead. That's what Jesus teaches us. You, do we realize that sin is the worship of Satan over God? See, we, we, we have such a problem. It's like we get offended before we get convicted when we're told that our sins are idolatry. I'm not an idolater. Yes, you are. And so am I. So am I. No question. See, we think idolatry means like you have to bow down at a statue or pray to something specific. No, no, no. Idolatry is what God calls it when we give to another what only belongs to Him. Right? We sin because we're idolaters. That's what Romans 1 will make clear to the entire world. Here's what your problem is. You've been handed over to follow your own desires and worship yourselves instead of me. That's God's wrath on us. That He's given us what we want. And we are idolaters. Satan is able to convince us to worship other things. He can do it. Especially when He makes us think that's not what we're doing. He's still succeeding at it today. Right? You, you can't convince Christians that they're worshiping an idol. You can't do it. Right? That's preposterous. How dare you assume that I am what God says I am? Satan is able to convince us. He's not able to convince Jesus. Jesus doesn't debate the devil's claim here. He doesn't... Argue about Satan's view of things. He goes straight to the heart of the matter in verse 8. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Since only God should be worshipped. Now, keep in mind the first commandment. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. It's, It's not that you can worship other things as long as God is at the top of what you worship. Right? God, family, country. Don't we say that all the time? With God at the top, like He's the main thing we worship. God says, I don't want any other gods mixed up in what you worship. I don't want anything else. When we read, before me, we think order. Before me means in my presence. You see how much harder it is to obey the law than it seems on a first reading? No wonder we need Jesus. So, it's not that you're allowed to worship other things as long as you put God at the top. He's what I worship the most. Nothing is before Him. And God would say, if there's other things in there, they're all before me. It's that only God is worthy of anything close to what worship is. God is the only one worthy of all that from us. And Jesus knew that. And He obeyed it for us. Because we will worship food and drink and clothes and other people's approval and houses, and land, and inheritances, and investments. All these things we're hoping in to give us something that we should be trusting God to. That's what it means to have other gods before me. So, is it a sin if I own land? No, but it certainly could be. We'll worship anything. Investments, vehicles, sports teams, countries, flags, or while deceiving ourselves. that Yeah, it's okay because I worship God the most. So it's okay. When God says nothing else should be worshipped at all. Even a little bit. And we do it every day. We do it every time we sin. Because all sin is what? It's choosing self over God. That's idolatry. No, no, no. I want this. So Jesus worships God exclusively and perfectly in our place. Satan will never tempt you or I with the kingdoms of the world. Since, of course, by the way, they're no longer His to give according to John 12, 31. So that card's been played. No, you and I require much less to sell out to our God. Jesus could have had all this apart from the cross. He could have had the world that way. And He said no. And He said no for you and for me. Because we say yes to much less of a temptation. Every time we sin, we're choosing ourselves over God. That is idolatry. We are denying God what is exclusively His. We're all guilty of treason every day. Jesus said, no. And He said no because we say yes. Verse 9. And He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not Put the Lord your God to the test. Now, it's funny. Everyone claims to know how to use scripture. Even the devil. Right? If, if, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to quote scripture to you. Mormons are going to quote scripture to you. False prophets are going to quote scripture. Part of the reason we're often so easily deceived by bad doctrine, carried about by every wind of doctrine, like Paul says we could be, is because we haven't learned from Luke 4 that even Satan can quote Scripture and even seem to be applying it correctly. Because when does it not apply if not in this moment? Right? If we have a very narrow understanding of Scripture, this says if you jump, he won't let you hit the ground. So I'm going to jump. That's that's a satanic way of interpreting Scripture. But Satan didn't see Jesus as the center of all Scripture. Satan didn't understand why the Bible was written. Therefore, he had no idea how to properly interpret the Scripture or to use the Scripture or to rightly divide it. But he still knows his Bible as far as that term goes. Most false teachers do know their Bibles or they wouldn't be successful. Having a verse. Like, I have a verse. That means nothing. Satan had verses. There's a way to properly interpret Scripture. It all depends, by the way, on the centrality of Jesus in your system of interpretation. Satan is basically questioning here whether Jesus really actually trusts God or not. Right? Because if he's as good as Jesus keeps claiming he is by his resistance to these temptations, fine, if you think he's so great, put him to the test. If he's so reliable and dependable and faithful and worthy of worship, then put him to the test. You see how easily Scripture can be twisted. What does Satan do? He finds a text that makes it look like it's okay to put the Lord to the test. He's, he's playing 4D chess here. Right? If, if you really believe this, if God didn't mean this, He wouldn't have said it. So, do you believe it or not? The verse Satan quotes, which is Psalm 91.11, wasn't given so that we could test God. Which is the same as questioning His Word. We only require a test if we aren't sure. You only require proof when you aren't sure, All right? There's 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 two ways to do that. You can take someone's word for it, or you can demand proof. Look in the world, most of the time, you should probably get proof. But what about God? And it's not that God hasn't proven Himself time and time again. Of course He has. So. We're never called to blind faith. We're called to faith in something certain and sure and true and lasting and eternal. But we almost always question God Always. That that's we do it by nature. It's not often it's not even malicious. We just we pray like that sometimes. Lord, I know that you said this, but I just don't see it. Right? Lord, I knew that I know that you promised this and you said this, but I'm not experiencing that. So we always question God's word, especially if and when our experiences seem to say other than something the word is saying. We can't see clearly, so we don't know fully. But for some reason, we think that we can get to the point where we see so well, we no longer need faith. All we know is that if we don't get what we're asking for or hoping for, or maybe or even praying for then it's okay to call God's character and His Word into question. It's very popular nowadays to deconstruct your faith. And there are a lot of things about the way we were raised that need to be questioned. No question about that. But the substance of our faith? Absolutely not. You don't question God like that, as, as though He's not... Proven himself, and so you need to reinvent the faith and rethink everything because for the last 2,000 years everybody has gotten it wrong, but this generation and all its wild brilliance and intellect has figured it out and they're gonna take Christianity back to where it needs to be, right? Which somehow always ends up in you approving that, which God has already called sin. It's amazing how that works. We may not ever say it out loud. But our confidence in God is often shaken. You said and I don't see it. And so if, if I could just you know jump off this cliff and you catch me, then I'll know everything is true. Real quick funny story this is one hundred percent true. Okay? This happened to me, I did it, I'm the fool here. Alright? I was in the eleventh grade, I was a Nazarene. So I never believed God actually loved me, unless I was living well enough that I wasn't losing my salvation. And I was at a youth event in Newark, Ohio, and they were giving away Kings Island tickets. Okay, this is how fragile a faith can be when you're young. Okay, I was genuinely this this that was how I lived. I was genuinely sure that God might not love me, might not want to forgive me of my sins. And so they're drawing names, and I said in my mind, sitting on the front row, Lord, if you love me. And if you want me to be your child and I'm still allowed to repent and be saved, then I will be the next name that is called. Now what do you think happened? I was the next name that was called. I won the ticket. You know how long it took me to sin after that? About five minutes. Right? I don't, look, I don't think God made me win the ticket. Right? I I don't know, but... But the assumption is is that if I can trust you, I won't mess up. If, if I can trust you, nothing bad will happen to me. If I can trust you, everything will go my way. If I could know, then I'll know, right? And nothing changes. Beloved, you and I could literally jump off a cliff. God could catch us before we fall and let us land safely. We're going to keep sinning. Most of us have seen God do amazing things in our life. And we keep sinning, which is saying, you don't tell the truth. I know the truth. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I can trust me more than I can trust you, cause I'm right here. I can trust what I see a lot more than I can trust you. Can you? Tell me, what can we trust in this world? When Jesus answers in verse twelve by quoting Deuteronomy six six sixteen, what he's saying is that look, God does not need to be doubted, Satan. What we need is to trust God that his word is true, even when its performance contradicts our experiences. But we don't. Beloved, we can't. We cannot perform the righteousness God requires. You and I are never going to be tempted to turn stones into bread. Jesus was tempted with much more than you and I would ever be tempted with. Nothing here is like inherently sinful. Do you see that? There's something deeper at play here. What's at play here is whether or not we will believe the Lord's Word. That's the one thing we cannot do. Yeah, I can turn turn stones into bread. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I I can rule the whole world, but I'm not going to take it from your hand. I know that God will catch me, so I'm going to stay right here and not jump. That's what God requires. Something that transcends mere moral choices. I pick the the good over the bad. Anybody can do that. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. See... We can't perform the righteousness God requires. How can faith hold on when it seems like God isn't listening or doesn't actually love us at all? So, Jesus comes and holds on for us. For us. Jesus believed God didn't need to prove Himself across a hundred different situations. We shouldn't either, but we do. So Jesus held on for us. Jesus believed God didn't need to prove Himself. God had already given His promise. Jesus didn't need to jump to know that God would catch Him. You and I have to jump. We have to jump. See, what Jesus has here is perfect faith. Perfect faith. And we don't have it. So He has it for us. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan was so blinded and irrational that he honestly thought eventually he could play the right card and Jesus would fall. But since everything Jesus believed about God and trusted God for was true, the opportune time Satan hoped for would actually be his orchestration of his own defeat. That's how short-sighted and irrational he was. He would enter Judas Iscariot thinking he was winning by getting Jesus killed, but God cannot be outsmarted any more than He can be defeated. Jesus was never going to fall to any of Satan's temptations. He had too much faith in God to do that. Not even the hardest ones that only He could be tempted with, like these. Jesus was not at His weakest in the Garden of Gethsemane when He was sweating blood. Not really... His flesh was weakest, I think, in that moment, but I I don't think His resolve had ever been stronger. Not my will, but Yours be done. So we trust the God who walks on water, who calms the storm, who gains life by His death and victory by His own defeat. In our place, tempted, He stood. And in our place, sure and steady, He held. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Beloved, that included resisting temptation because of who God is. We don't do that. See, it's in our DNA. We never have done that. Humanity can't resist temptation even when it has all of its needs met by God. As Adam and Eve proved in the Garden of Eden. See, that's what Jesus came to reverse. Even when all the questions are answered, all the provision is given, and not just like what you need, but it's beautiful and it's excess and it's perfect and glorious, we will still question God's Word. So we need Jesus not only to not lust when He's tempted to, not steal when He's tempted to. Yes, we need that. Not lie when He's tempted to. Yes, we need that. We need it. We also need Him to not fall where we always fall, where we fell in the garden, when the sin was not something profane and awful and immoral and horrible, it was, you aren't telling me the truth, I can't trust you. That fruit that I can see looks better than what you said. Nobody can keep themselves from that. That's what Adam and Eve passed on to us. It's literally in our DNA, literally. So if salvation would have been dependent on any one of us, if any one of us, the best human being you can think of, the best one you can think of, put them in the wilderness, they're failing right here. And we with them. God has to provide a way of escape for us to have any hope of resisting temptation. Jesus was on his own. Again, he could have changed... Stones, the bread to eat, it wouldn't have been a sin at all. He could have created water from nothing. He could have jumped off any building he wanted to. He could have laid plain to Jerusalem and Rome and the entire world and wouldn't have been sinning at all. But when Satan made these things a matter of whether or not God's word was faithful and he was worthy of worship and true, Jesus resisted because those are precisely the things God is that we tend to doubt He is. We need one to stand in our place and hold the line because when it was in our hands, we let go. And that's who Jesus is for us. He is the beloved Son with whom God is already pleased for you. Because God is pleased with Him for you, you never have to wonder if He's pleased with you, ever. We stand before God in Christ. He's pleased with you. He loves you. You are free now. You are free to love your neighbor as yourself, just as He commanded. You really can and will lose nothing except what the world has. We stand before God in Christ. Jesus stands in our place not only to forgive us, but to make us perfectly righteous before God the Father. When we receive the gift of salvation, not only is all our sin and guilt washed away by the blood of Jesus, but all the times we've given in to temptation, all the things we've... the the, Um, All the times we've not done what we were commanded to do. All the times we've lacked the righteousness we should have obeyed. All our doubt and unbelief when there should have been nothing but faith and worship. All of that shortcoming has the perfect temptation-resisting, faithful obedience of Jesus credited to our account as though we did what He has done. We are made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus. You see, God says you're His child. Satan calls it into question. That's the first temptation. He comes to us every time we fall to say, are you really God's Son? You're a Christian? Then you wouldn't have done that. You'll never mess up again. Or you're a fraud. That's Satan. It's not the Spirit that challenges us all the time. To prove it, but it is written: For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith (Galatians 3:26). That's what God says. God says He alone is worthy of worship. Satan calls it into question. That's the second temptation. It's the desires of our flesh, though, not God's character, that challenges us to worship other things. But it is written. Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. Revelation 4, 11. And God has said He will be there to catch us when we fall. Satan calls it into question. That's the third temptation. But it is our unbelief. It's not God's character that challenges us, challenges us to doubt Him, to test Him. But it is written... As for You, O Lord, You will not restrain Your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Psalm 40, 11. You can bank on Jesus. Every single day. All day long. All that Jesus did, He did it in our place, beloved. All of it. He didn't die to get us to the starting line. He died to get us to the finish line. So when you wonder whether God accepts you, don't look at yourself. Remember that God has already accepted Jesus on your behalf as the one who wiped away your sins so that you're no longer guilty and as the one who performed the righteousness you didn't and haven't and won't and can't. And be at peace. It really is finished for you.